This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. Any generation's notions of justice can change. And you know, norms change. And once they're changed, and they're changed for 10 or 20 years, that's just the way things are. And we have this illusion that things constantly get better. But things don't necessarily constantly get better. Things can get worse. And we're in a period where things are going to get worse. The basic rule of law and adherence of of power to law and the respect for individual rights and freedoms enumerated in the Constitution, that's all getting worse right now. That was criminal defense attorney Dan Seaton. On May 10th, Attorney General Jeff Sessions sent a memo to all federal prosecutors with new directives for charging and sentencing in criminal cases. This isn't anything new or out of the ordinary. Every administration has its own charging priorities. But what's striking about Sessions' memo is that it feels like some kind of time warp. He's directed federal prosecutors to charge defendants with the most severe penalties possible and pursue mandatory minimum sentences where they're available. We're headed straight back into the war on drugs from the 80s and 90s, a war that did not end drug use and did not make anyone safer. Instead, it ripped apart families, it packed American prisons, and it resulted in long sentences for a lot of nonviolent drug offenders. It was a disaster, and everyone seemed to agree. So during the Obama administration, there was bipartisan support for sentencing reform. And for the first time in decades, federal inmate numbers were down, and the Justice Department made plans to stop sending inmates to private prisons. But last month, Sessions decided to relaunch the war on drugs. This is a show about crime and punishment in the Trump era. You'll hear from Dan Seaton, Mark Kaplan, and Lisa Shellcrot, veteran defense attorneys who together have represented thousands of people who were targets of the war on drugs. Here's Mark Kaplan. What happened was, uh, quite a few years ago, sort of part of the war on drugs that Nixon started, Congress decided that it would make sense in certain situations not to allow the judge to give someone a sentence below a certain, certain amount of time. They're called mandatory minimums because Congress felt uh, that the judges were being too lenient on certain offenders. So, for example, in the, in the federal statutes, there are mandatory minimums that deal with, with drug offenses. And they range from 5 to 10 to 20 years, sometimes more, but that's typically the kind of mandatory minimums that, that we're talking about. And the problem with mandatory minimums is that it, it, it vests all this, this huge amount of authority in the prosecutor's hands, takes it away from the judge in most cases. You could have a first-time offender who's an addict, who has no criminal record, and simply was a street-level dealer, for example, you know, to feed his own habit, go in front of the judge for sentencing, and, then, and a judge, if he exercised his discretion, might give, the, might give the person you know, a year or two, might just send him to rehab. Instead, he's got to give him five years or ten years, depending on how he was charged by the prosecutor. This is Lisa Shellcrot. When you don't have a mandatory minimum sentence, the judge, at the end of the day, gets to make that call about what the sentence should be. 
the judge says, okay, I'm weighing all the factors, I'm looking at this person's background, their history, their characteristics, their education, their family, um, maybe they've got uh, a history of mental illness or abuse or addiction, uh, and the judge then makes a sentence, uh, makes a determination of what the just sentence is considering all those factors. When a person is found guilty of a charge that carries a mandatory minimum sentence, uh, the judge can't go below whatever the threshold is for that mandatory minimum sentence. Um, they're going to get at least that five or ten years, and there's nothing the judge can do about that. It is just not how criminal justice works in a functioning community, that you immediately seek the most serious charges and the maximum sentence on those charges. It doesn't work. The goal is to reduce crime, reduce fear of crime, and to rehabilitate offenders. But central to that is the discretion that prosecutors have and judges have. If the defendant's a 25-year-old, you know, his best working years, uh, his best working years are the next 30 years. So how many of those years do we want to have him in prison versus out in society productive if we can safely get him out in society and productive? That is the opposite of what Jeff Sessions is talking about doing. I mean, I was negotiating a case in federal court in the U.S. Attorney's Office with a very experienced federal prosecutor. And we were, the guideline was like 30 to life, but we were talking about maybe eight or nine years. And now I'm told by him he can't recommend less than 30 years. So he thought, based on his experience and his expertise and looking at the individual facts of the case, that, that it, a fair sentence for the government would be like eight or nine years. Now he can't recommend less than 30. I mean, they could hire monkeys to, to run this operation, you know? I mean, we've had this war on drugs since Nixon. It's been proven over and over again that it's not making us any safer. This isn't going to make anyone any safer. It's just going to put people in jail forever. And even Congress recently, before Trump was elected, was moving away from mandatory minimums, moving away from these long sentences. Lots, I mean, a lot of the legislators were doing it because they just thought it was getting too expensive to keep all these people in jail. But a fair number were doing it because they were seeing it didn't work. You know, where the money should really go is rehab. People talk a lot about, well, we shouldn't be, we clearly want to jail the drug dealers for long periods of time, but not the drug users. The reality is there's not a bright line between those two people. Sure, there are the people at the top of the drug cartels, and there are people who are selling drugs purely for profit, but there is a very, very, very big overlap between those two groups of people. In many, many cases, they're one and the same. They're people who are addicts and are also participating in drug transactions to help feed their habit. You know, jailing drug addicts doesn't make them not drug addicts. Unless you intend to take every addict and lock them up until the day they die, you really, at some point, need to deal with the addiction on the back end. Rehab isn't part of Jeff Sessions' memo. Neither is poverty, or dysfunctional schools, or mental health, or racism, or the other drivers of most crime. People who operate inside the criminal justice system know that it's often a dumping ground for people who've been let down by society as much as they've harmed it. Again, here's Mark Kaplan. 
they'll put a 19-year-old in an adult prison for four or five years. Like they'll send them to upstate New York, put them in Attica or something. And when they're finished serving it, they'll put them on a bus and send them back to the Bronx. And they'll step off that bus and there's not one thing waiting for them. So they don't have any money. Frequently, they don't have a place to live. I had a client recently who got off the bus, and his first night out, he was living in a crack house because he had no place to go. So there's no services, almost none, except with a few exceptions, provided to these people. And like when, you know, when Reagan cut all the programs back in the, in the early 80s, uh, that's, I think that was the start of a lot of this. A lot of the breakdown in the families, they, you know, he cut out the child care programs and the after-school programs. And, and I can recall people saying, well, that's not our problem, that's the city's problem. And I, I always said, it's going to come back to us at some point, you know, and it has. So I don't think we can solve all the problems of the world, but, you know, we really need to deal with people. Once they're in the system and they're caught, uh, how, what do we do to make sure they don't come back? The criminal justice system is probably our largest health care provider in the country. It's probably uh, one of our largest public housing providers. Um, the criminal justice system, that's our social safety net these days. You know, we don't really have a public mental health system, and we have been unable to really come up with a public health care system that seems to work for people and that seems um, what we've done instead is we've said our public health care, health care for the poor, that's going to be provided in jail. That's where we're doing it. It's not very good health care, but it's more than what people are getting out on the street. So think about whether that's really where we want to spend our health care dollars is in jail. Think about where, whether that's where, where we want to spend our public housing dollars in jail, because that's where we're doing it. The difference between now and the 1980s is that in the 1980s, they were at the peak of uh, several years of increasing violent crime and, and drug crime. But we're really now at a, at a low point historically in the history of the whole country in terms of crime. Um, there's a couple of cities that have that are like hot spots, but nationwide crime is not anything near what it's ever been. So you don't have that. It's not as if seeking uh, lower sentences was having bad effects. In other words, communities were realizing savings and money. People were getting out and productive quicker for nonviolent drug offenses. I can only see it. And I don't think he's even trying to dress it up. I think this is, again, sort of consistent for this entire regime to, to the white nationalists and their their core base, this is an absolute obvious gesture. They know who this is aimed at. And it's not going to be white communities. White communities are not over-policed. They're not over-prosecuted. This is going to be aimed at minority communities. And it's aimed at uh, creating fear and ramping up incarceration. And who will benefit from it is the private prison industrial complex. And that's reflected in their stock, which is going up. Private jails are moneymakers, like anything else, you know, and, and the corporations that own and operate and profit off bodies, they lobby in our legislatures. They are some of the entities that are, that are working against sentencing reform. 
And you can certainly imagine why they would be, right? If you make your money off having however many thousand bodies filling up your jail cell, then you want to make sure that we're not going to change the laws so there will be fewer bodies. You know, there's a word for buying and selling bodies and profiting off them, Um, and it's slavery. Uh, That's the word for it, right? That's what, when we buy and sell bodies, that's what we call it. You know, you can take the most ardent conservative who says you should lock everyone up and throw the key away, but when it's their son or daughter, and I had this experience, I was in the legis- in the state senate for quite a few years on the criminal justice system, and there was a senator who railed against, it's like the Civil Liberties Union, whenever he could. And sometime down the road, one of his children was charged with a crime, and all of a sudden he felt differently about how the system should work and and what the system should do for someone and, you know, the rights that you should have as a defendant. You know, why do we want to send our sons and daughters and relatives, nonviolent offenders, give, why do we want to give them long sentences? It, you know, it's just, you create an atmosphere, a kind of society that, that I don't think is one that I want to live in. You, know? you, you talk about, you know, what's working and what's not working, but what about the role of punishment? Punishment is cleansing. No. No, not at all. In fact, right behind you on the bookshelf are the Vermont reports. That's the reported appellate cases from the Vermont Supreme Court going back to the founding of the state, right? They see the books on top. They're crumbling, leather-bound. And each of those cases is a story in the 1800s. Just pick randomly just one of those volumes and read some of the criminal cases. You had people engaging in the same nonsense they do today. You had people stealing things, breaking into places, driving drunk, you know, occasionally like engaging in violent crime, fights, you know, assaults, people getting in fights over things. And the system responded and some degree of punishment was meted out. But for the most part, all of those people, most of them were folded back into the fabric of society. You can't, you can't have an us and them approach when when you think about crime. It, it doesn't work. I've been doing this long enough now. I can just say, it's us and them until it's you. It's not that hard. You're at a party. You have two glasses of wine, and you're on your way home. You're not DUI. Someone steps out in front of your car, and you kill them. There's now a very real debate about whether you're guilty of manslaughter. You know, so it was us and them, but now it's you. We just understand these things. It goes all the way back to the Bible. People will stray. will stray from the flock. People will do bad things. People get it wrong and people get it right. But the point in a community is to maintain as much as possible the fabric, the integrity of the fabric of the community and not simply destroy people for every misdeed, every transgression. You know, there has to be a response, it has to be proportionate, but that response should be in view of that individual's entire life and their entire contribution. Why do I care about people who are willing to come up here and sell drugs? Why do I care how long? Why don't they deserve long, harsh punishments? 
because uh, I under I I understand that question, and yet it's not. Um, we should care because they're people. We shouldn't have to say more than that. They're people. People who commit crimes, they're not fundamentally different. And we should care for no other reason than that. That should be enough. If that's not enough, we should care because it's ruining our culture to take people and jail them for longer and longer periods of time. And it's ruining our culture to rip apart the social fabric. And nobody's going to convince me that locking up more people in cages for more time is going to make the fabric of our society better. I see that it does a huge, I mean, incalculable damage to families and communities and workplaces. Uh, you know, you, you tear apart communities when you put somebody in jail. Uh, you're creating castes of people, and there's this cast of people, and they're generally the people without money, uh, and without means, and without resources, uh, and without opportunities, and you're relegating them to generations of poverty and jail and criminal justice. You can't convince me that that's a better way to address our problems than, than other more restorative ways. When I look at the big picture, I get very uh, not, not hopeful. Mm-hmm. At the state level, all my hope is in the state of Vermont. <laughs> right? I'm a citizen of this state first. I'm a citizen of this state first. This constitution, this government, right? That's where my loyalty lies. It's got to be because at the national level, I just I can't believe what I'm seeing. You've been listening to attorneys Dan Seaton, Mark Kaplan, and Lisa Shellcrot. For more on each of them, visit my website at rumblestripvermont.com. I'd like to thank Mark Davis, Susan Randall, and Charlie Tetzlaff for their help on this show. Music for this show is by Vermont musicians Peter Cressy, Brian Clark, and Mike D'Onofrio. The show is produced in collaboration with journalist Mark Davis of Seven Days, and you can read his article on Sessions' new charging guidelines at sevendaysvt.com. If you like the show and you have a minute, please make a comment on iTunes. It helps new listeners find the show or spread the word in your social media sphere. That helps, too. And if you want to make a donation of any amount, it would be great. Just go to my website, rumblestripvermont.com, and look for the green button at the top right of the homepage. It's green. The button. The green button. This is Erica Heilman with Rumble Strip. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>